0: Welcome to 340B Insight, from 340B Health. Hello from Washington, D.C., and welcome back to 340B Insight, the podcast about the 340B drug pricing program. I'm David Glendinning with 340B Health. This episode is sponsored by RX Strategies, a clear choice for 340B program management. RX Strategies provides intuitive 340B solutions including robust analytics, high-touch service, maximum savings, and unwavering 340B program compliance so their customers can achieve more. As we record this episode, we are still analyzing the results from the polls last Tuesday, and our next episode will break down the election takeaways for the 340B program. Our guest today is Alan Morgan, Chief Executive Officer for the National Rural Health Association. With National Rural Health Day coming up on November 19th, we spoke with Alan on topics important to rural hospitals. This included how the providers he represents are faring amid the latest COVID-19 surge, recent manufacturer actions against contract pharmacies, and additional rural health challenges. We also discussed provider strategies to take on these challenges, in many cases with the help of 340B Savings. But before we go to that interview, Let's take a minute to cover some of the latest news about 340B. The number of drug manufacturers taking unilateral action to cut off 340B pricing for drugs dispensed at contract pharmacies increased to four recently. Novartis, the third largest drug company in the world, announced that starting next week, it no longer will offer discounts to hospitals unless the contract pharmacies are within a 40-mile radius of the hospital's parent site. As you know, many pharmacies that 340B hospitals partner with are outside of that radius, especially if they're mail order or specialty pharmacies. You can find out more about this development and our response to it in the show notes. At the same time, the list of organizations opposing these manufacturer actions against 340B is growing larger, broader, and more vocal. A group of more than 60 organizations advocating on behalf of patients, health consumers, and civil rights and social justice sent a letter to HHS Secretary Alex Azar urging him to block these companies. They include such prominent organizations as the NAACP, AIDS United, the American Federation of Teachers, and two of the nation's largest workers' unions. And did you light a candle? or? 28 candles to be more precise, the day after the November 3rd election, because that marked the day back in 1992 when President George H.W. Bush signed into law the bill that would implement what would become known as the 340B drug pricing program. Check out the show notes for a special 340B birthday message from our CEO, Maureen Testoni. Now for today's feature interview with Alan Morgan, CEO of the National Rural Health Association. Alan has more than 30 years of experience in federal and state health policy, and he has been recognized among the top 100 most influential people in healthcare by Modern Healthcare Magazine. Prior to NRHA, he spent time as a staffer to a congressman and a governor, as well as a healthcare lobbyist. Our own Miles Goldman sat down with Alan recently to discuss how things are going in rural America. Let's hear that conversation.
1: Thanks, David. I'm Miles Goldman from 340B Health, and I'm joined today by Alan Morgan, the CEO of the National Rural Health Association. There is a lot happening in rural health right now, and we're excited to have you join us, Alan. Welcome to 340B Insight.
2: Thank you so much, Miles. Great to be on the program with you today.
1: One of the reasons we're excited to have you join us is to preview National Rural Health Day on November 19th. Tell us about this day and how it highlights the important role rural hospitals play.
2: National Rural Health Day is the opportunity for us that are advocates of of rural America and rural health to come together to celebrate what works in a rural context. Miles, you know this, we spend 364 days a year highlighting the challenges, the obstacles, and the, the problems that we deal with. This is that one day that we just focus in on what works. And so it's a nice, it's a great day for all of us.
1: And so are there specific ways they can join NRHA in the celebration? Oh my gosh,
2: yes. Well, for most of your listeners, I know that they're active on uh, several social platforms, whether it's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. We're just asking our members to just share what's working in their community, highlight best practices, and just highlight the relevance and the importance of rural healthcare delivery in a rural context. I know it sounds crazy, but it's just people don't talk about rural health and being able to have it trending at that time is is a great opportunity to remind people there is a rural America out there.
1: With more than 130 rural hospitals closing since 2010, how does 340B help rural hospitals overcome some of their challenges? Yeah, right.
2: I, I It's just a fact that the general public and even a lot of people in the healthcare system don't realize how central The 340B program is to the overall success of rural hospitals. It's crazy to think that back in early April, the first week of April, 48% of our nation's rural hospitals were operating at a loss. The ability for those rural hospitals to stay afloat is directly attributable to the 340B program. It has been a lifeline and a savior to maintaining access in rural communities. Miles.
1: We've heard the same thing, Alan. You know, we we did a research report earlier this year where more than 75% of rural hospitals told us that 340B is helping them keep their doors open.
2: Oh my gosh, yes. And I, I have to drive home the fact that that is exactly the congressional intent of this program. The intent was to make sure we maintain access for the nation's safety net providers and no greater example of that can be found in the nation's rural community health centers, rural health clinics that are connected to the rural hospitals, particularly for the critical access hospital program. That's those rural hospitals with 25 or fewer inpatient beds, which are among the smallest across the nation.
1: And I imagine those hospitals are facing even more challenges with COVID-19.
2: I mentioned to you that 48% were operating at a loss on April 1. Well, that was when they shut down their outpatient and elective procedures, which represents up to 75% of their revenue. So I'm telling you, these rural hospitals that were facing closure operating at a loss then immediately shut down 70 to 75% of their income. It was apocalyptic. Even hospitals that were doing well were not making payroll, were struggling to make payroll, were looking to furloughs and were facing the possibility of closing their services in the midst of a
1: pandemic. And some of these hospitals, they didn't see cases initially, so that made it even more difficult in some ways, right?
2: This this is what's unique, really, in a rural context at the beginning of beginning of this crisis, when we were shutting down really rural hospitals across the United States, because we had cases primarily in New York City that cleared out all the revenue coming in the door. And from I want to say about the second week in May is when we've started to see rural take center stage when it comes to the COVID story. In mid-May, Miles, the cases, percentage per population, were increasing at a higher rate than urban, hospitalizations have increased at a higher rate than urban, and unfortunately mortality has increased per population much higher than they see in these urban areas.
1: And of course, when they do have COVID patients come in, they have a limited number of beds. I know you just mentioned they have 25 beds. and. That isn't ICU beds, that's just beds overall.
2: You're absolutely right, Miles. You're talking nationwide, there are just under 2,000 rural hospitals, 1,300 are critical access hospitals, those facilities with 25 or fewer inpatient beds. So there really is no room for error when you're talking about surge capacity in this context. And it's really important to note that our system is exactly as we designed it to be, which is efficient. Um, Miles, efficiency doesn't work well in a global pandemic. And the payment structure really mandates that we keep heads in beds, and that's how we're paid. The, The ER needs to be full. On average, they've got one ventilator on staff, on site. And I'll be honest, for most of these rural hospitals, they don't have an ICU room. They have a they have a room or rooms that are hardwired to the nursing station. These rural hospitals are designed for primary care, general surgery. They were never designed for global pandemic response. But what's happening is as these communities surge and recede, it's next to impossible to plan to make sure that we have an adequate supply, and we are positioned to do both outpatient services and elective procedures while still maintaining a level of beds necessary to face oncoming surges of COVID.
1: And what are you telling them in order to how they can prepare for this new wave of COVID-19 cases? Are they learning from each other?
2: Yeah, The, the, the now let's talk about some good things that are happening out there in a rural context. One of the main differences in a rural context is the ability to collaborate and network among peer organizations. So throughout this crisis, what we've learned is the ability for um, large systems to be able to share staffing, which is so vitally important, and to um, triage where we have these surges. We've actually seen multiple cases where when you, particularly in the state of Texas, where you've had a rural hospital surge and surrounding peer hospitals will pitch in and, and bring in supplies, PPE, um, and in some cases even ventilators just to meet that need there locally on staff uh, and on site. And I gotta tell you, there's, there's a lot of shortcomings obviously, but from what I'm hearing from our membership, FEMA has done a fairly good job of dropping into these sites and being able to assist with the transfer of patients because again, these rural hospitals' standard protocol is, once you need to be in ICU, you are transferred. Um, that's not always the case sometimes when the surrounding urban areas are surging at the same time.
1: Are there government regulatory flexibilities that have helped rural hospitals?
2: Oh, gosh, yes. That's one of the great success stories, I think. Uh, it's been a terrible tragedy, and I, I hate to even talk about successful things in such a, a horrible situation but with, within the regulations that have been r- released by HHS and CMS, most notably for telehealth applications, it, I, I think it has it allowed us in rural to demonstrate that telehealth can expand access, I- I improve care, and not break the bank, if you will, when it comes to the Medicare program. And I don't, I don't see that we will ever go back to the regulations pre-COVID, just the ability to deliver specialty care and now even primary care through telehealth, it's going to make a huge difference as we move ahead. And oh my word, the the advances and the utilization of telehealth and behavioral health, uh, enormous.
1: Are there non-telehealth related innovations that have stood out to you?
2: Yeah, I wanna say two things that, that I'm really happy and encouraged to hear from our membership as a result of this. Number one, probably the the biggest one, which may not sound that way, is the ability of rural hospitals and rural hospital CEOs to be communicators and connectors of care within their communities. This pandemic has forced a lot of rural hospital CEOs to be the information hub and source in their rural community, which I think is going to position them extraordinarily well as we move out of this. I think rural communities are now recognizing that these rural hospitals are community assets, that they, they are anchor institutions and that they need to be supported by the community, number one. Number two, it, it is forced the team-based approach of healthcare that we've often and long talked about. And in particular, Miles, it's forced healthcare practitioners to practice to the upper limits of their training and educational competence, which is great. I mean, the ability to have nurse practitioners, physician assistants working in a team-based approach and handling aspects of care that they may not, might not have handled pre-pandemic I think that's gonna help us to be a better positioned system coming out of this.
1: I think that's a great segue to looking ahead to the future of rural hospitals. Some have suggested having these hospitals focus solely on providing primary care services. What are your thoughts on this idea?
2: Well, we could spend a lot of time talking about this. I, I will say that that across the board, rural hospitals are designed for primary care general surgery. Um, But it it really depends on the community. Some communities, the community need demonstrates that they need to have a a, a specialty care approach. One thing that I am a little concerned about at the National Rural Health Association, our greatest concern is access to 24-7 emergency room services and the ability to expand OB care and maternity care. And the reason, Miles, is if you don't have that 24-7 emergency room service, it's not safe to have senior citizens living in your community. If you don't have maternity care and OB care, you're not going to attract young families into that community. So the challenge is when you lose a rural hospital, you're losing the ability to retain your citizens and attract new ones in. There have been some people who have, have pushed for looking at just standalone ER facilities, from a volume standpoint, it it just isn't practical. It's not going to work. Now, for our organization, we are advocating for a new delivery model, which would have only outpatient services attached to a 24-7 ER, utilizing telehealth appropriately linked up for the specialty care teleconsultations and doing a real community needs assessment to determine what are the services most needed by your community. This would eliminate inpatient bed requirements from these facilities. Let me say, I I think this model could work and help maintain access in these rural communities.
1: Switching gears, A group of drug manufacturers are refusing to provide 340B discounts to hospitals when drugs are dispensed at community pharmacies. What does this mean for rural care providers?
2: Oh, it's a terrible, terrible development and a terrible trend that has to be stopped. The ability for covered entities to utilize contract pharmacies in a rural setting has to be maintained. We've talked at the beginning of this about the important, important role that the 340B program, the important role that it is in maintaining access of these hospital facilities, but also just the ability for residents to be able to utilize pharmacy services within their community. I, I can't stress that enough. I, I get the opportunity to go out and travel to our rural hospitals across the U.S. and so many times, I just I'm in communities that sometimes may have a telepharmacy application there that it's just not practical for that point of care not to be in that community from a geographic standpoint. And even some cases where it may not seem that long of a distance, but with inclement weather, these these residents just are cut off. It's not safe. And we're seeing pharmacies close across the United States. This is absolutely not the time to be decreasing access to care.
1: We've heard that drug manufacturers' actions are not only impacting access to medications, but also access for safety net providers to 340B savings. Uh, At 340B Health, we have found more than 50% of 340B savings for rural hospitals come from community pharmacies.
2: I I firmly believe if you're the only provider in that community, you are a safety net provider. Provider and these rural hospitals, you can't think of them as just doing inpatient care. In fact, that's not even the majority of their their revenue. They're doing long term care. They're doing EMS. They're doing chronic care management. Any and every aspect in the community, they're doing. They are the hubs, and this 340B program is a lifeline to maintain that access. Miles, before this pandemic began, sometimes I'd hear people in D.C. say, well, you know, rural America, it's getting older, it's, it's, it's dying away, what can you do? During this pandemic, I think we all know people are moving away from urban areas as quickly as they can. You have to have access to care for these uh, families moving in. It's not the case that rural America is fading away. It's a case that we need to maintain this access as we do this national shift in how people view work and where they work from and where they live.
1: And when you're speaking to policymakers, what are some of your top messages that you want them to know about the pharmacists and other caregivers working in rural communities?
2: Yeah, so we've been working directly with members of Congress and obviously communicating directly with the administration on the important role that community pharmacists play in a rural context. And also a paramount concern that the 340B program and what it means to rural communities as well going ahead. We have to maintain the access to community pharmacists. We have to maintain as well access to pharmacy services. And we wanna make sure that any efforts at a national level that 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 might, counter the this important service um, are addressed head on
1: well certainly there is a lot of work to be done in terms of advocacy and and working on all these issues thank you alan for providing us with important insights into the challenges and successes rural hospitals are experiencing in this current environment
2: miles appreciate to join your program and the ongoing partnership that the national rural health association has had with 340B and will have in the future. Working together, I think we can ensure that we maintain access to care for rural communities as we move forward.
0: Our thanks again to Alan Morgan for his service to rural health providers and their patients all over the U.S. We fervently hope that they start seeing some more light over the horizon very soon. What questions about rural health do you still have following today's episode? As always, if you have any questions or comments about any of the items we cover here at 340B Insight, please email us at podcast at 340BHealth.org. It has not escaped our attention that the results of the recent elections are still sinking in for many of us as we look ahead to 2021 and beyond. Our government relations team is busy analyzing the results of the races and planning outreach to all those chosen to represent constituents starting in January. For more intelligence on what the outcomes mean for 340B providers and patients, please join us on Thursday, November 19th for a 340B health election webinar. And as we mentioned earlier, we will be diving deeper into what you might expect from Capitol Hill and the White House on our next episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, thanks for listening and be well. Thanks for listening to 340B Insight. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit our website at 340bpodcast.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at 340B Health and submit a question or idea to the show by emailing us at podcast at 340Bhealth.org.